Reading from the Gospel according to chapter 5, verses 19 to 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he, sa- what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he also has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Back in the day, we used to say the dog ate my homework. Well, now it's computers that do that. And there were a couple of computer issues this morning. And I thought it was on top of everything, but I forgot to print out the text the way that I normally do. So thank you for being flexible with that, Reuben. Um, Let's just look to the Lord quickly in prayer before we turn to his word. Father, again, we thank you that you have gathered us together. And Lord, that you are ready to speak to us through your holy word. We pray that as we consider these ancient words together, that your spirit would speak to us here and now and into our lives this very day. And Lord, that you would work in us all that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So just... uh, By way of review a little bit, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 read, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Furthermore, we are told in verse 4 that on the way, as he was leaving Judea and going back to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria, and that's where he encountered the woman that we considered in the sermon just last Sunday, whose testimony, whose witness to the fact that she had met someone who she thought to be the Christ led to a mass conversion in the town where she lived. John chapter 4, verses 39 to 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And I want you to remember that pattern because we saw that earlier in John, we will see it again as we go on. Some people believed, at least to some extent, because of the woman's testimony. But beyond that, her words brought the townspeople to Jesus, and many more believed because of his word. Her witness, her testimony, involved pointing people to Jesus, and they came to Jesus, they heard his word, and that's what converted them. As I said, we saw it earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, when Andrew went and he brought Peter to Jesus, and when Philip went and brought Nathaniel to Jesus. And this dynamic that we're seeing could be summarized in the words of Romans 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. There can be a multitude of things that help to bring them to that place where they hear the word of Christ, but it's the word of Christ that converts hearts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, which is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And we need to have this in our minds when we think about faith conversations. That's a modern way of talking about witnessing as we used to talk about it back in the day. Back then, witnessing was often to be perceived about telling our stories, telling people what God had done for us, and sharing our faith journey. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want you to hear me say you shouldn't do that. You should. You should be ready always to tell people what great things the Lord has done in your life. But your story... Our stories of faith need to point ultimately to Christ and not to ourselves. The woman at the well in Samaria had a particular problem, and Jesus singled it out. But not so that she or we could become preoccupied with her problem. Not so that we would focus on her. It's not helpful, even in preaching that text from the Gospel of John, to speculate a lot about her morality and the implications of what Jesus said, you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. In the end, Jesus' reason for calling attention to that was not to call attention to her life so much as to call attention to himself, to call attention to the fact that he was and is the Christ, the Son of God, And indeed, as the Samaritans testified, the Savior of the world. Well, that's how it worked in that encounter that he had at the well of Sychar in in Samaria. In verses 46 to 54 of John chapter 4, we find that the miracles or the signs that Jesus did served exactly that same purpose. The signs were not to draw attention to themselves. They were not to draw attention to the one who received the miracle or in apostolic times, the one who performed it. The signs served to point people to Jesus so that they could come to him and hear his word. On this occasion, at the end of John chapter 4, an official from Capernaum came down to Jesus in Galilee and asked him to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was at the point of death. 
So serious business. And we don't know the tone of Jesus' response. We only know that what he said to the man, when the man said, come down to Capernaum, heal my son, he is at the point of death, was that Jesus turned to him and said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is something he said earlier in John. He'll say it again later in John. It's not meant as a compliment or as a normative pattern. Well, we're going to do signs and wonders so that you will believe. When Jesus says that, what he's really saying is it ought to be enough that you are in the presence of the very Son of God and you will hear the word of God. Well, the man was not inclined to argue, unlike the woman at the well in Samaria who wanted to get into a theological debate with Jesus. This man's son was dying and he had no interest in such things. So in verse 49, he said, Sir, come down before my child dies. He prayed and Jesus said, No. Jesus refused his request. At least he refused to go down to Capernaum. That's what the man asked for. See how we sometimes not only tell God what we want, but how we want him to do it and when? Come down to Capernaum and heal my son. He's on the point of death. Jesus said, no. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. And come to think of it, I think that's maybe what Timothy Keller was talking about when he said, and I quoted this before, but I wasn't sure who said it, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Maybe Jesus knew something about the boy's illness. The man is saying, come down to Capernaum and heal my son. Maybe Jesus knew that if he took the time to go down to Capernaum, the boy wouldn't be alive to be healed anymore when he got there. And regardless, he didn't need to go to Capernaum to heal this man's son. He needed merely to exert his authority over the physical realm, and the boy was healed. So go, and your son has already been made well. But pay close attention to the text here. Because it does not say, the man went down to Capernaum, and when he saw that his son had been healed, he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Quite the opposite. Verse 50 says, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So he believed the word of Christ before he saw the sign. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. He trusted in Jesus. More about that a little bit later. But it makes sense because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And in the end, when he testified to the word that Jesus had spoken, all of his household believed as well. And we could do the whole sermon just on that text. But for this morning, we can't linger there. We have to go on to from the second sign that Jesus did, which was the healing of the nobleman's son to the third, found in John chapter 5, the healing of a long-term invalid at the pool called Bethesda. But I want to just make a quick mention about the word signs here once again. In John chapter 2, verse 23, he wrote, Now when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So we know the first sign was the changing of the water to wine at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. 
And then we know Jesus after that went down to Jerusalem and he did many more signs and people believed in him when they saw what he was doing. But John didn't enumerate those. He just said Jesus was doing these things, people believed. And throughout his gospel, instead of giving us some sort of a comprehensive list of all of the miracles that Jesus did, and trust me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give a comprehensive list either, Jesus, or John, just singles out seven signs. Seven miracles that Jesus did to be treated with a certain degree of detail, and those are spread through the first half, really, the first two-thirds of the Gospel of John. He gives us a miracle, and then he intersperses dialogue that Jesus had or discourses that Jesus gave. And the miracles are there to point to the word that Jesus will speak, because, as I mentioned back at the beginning, that's the pattern. Something testifies to the reality of who Jesus is, and then we come and we listen to his word, and it's his word that brings salvation. John singles out seven, and that's a highly symbolic number in itself, the number of divine perfection. And he speaks of those in great detail. And that's the process behind the statement in John chapter 20, verse 30, which you're going to hear a lot in the course of this series, because this is the theme, the purpose of the book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John's not claiming to tell us about everything that Jesus ever did on every occasion when he worked a miracle. The seven were not meant to be an exhaustive list. We don't know the rest, and we don't need to know the rest. But, John said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this sign performed at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5 is no exception. It would be easy to get lost in the details here. We could talk about the pool. It's still there, by the way. You can go visit it if you go to Jerusalem. We could talk about the angel who came down periodically and stirred up the waters and how the people who were waiting around the pool had to get into the water while the angel was stirring them. And the first person to get in when the water started to stir would be healed. We could talk about the really strange question that Jesus addressed to this man who had been disabled. He was an invalid. It means without strength. He was without strength for 38 years. And Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to be healed? Well, do you think? 38 years. We don't know how long. He lay there day after day next to the pool at Bethesda, just hoping that maybe somebody would help him or he could crawl down into that water fast enough that he could be healed. And when we take that question, do you want to be healed, together with the statement that Jesus made in John 5.14, where he comes to the same man who was an invalid, he was disabled, he may have been a paralytic, and Jesus comes to him and says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And we're all thinking, hmm, worse than 38 years of paralysis. All of that is interesting. 
But there are two things in particular here that I want to point out. First, I want to notice together that seeing is not necessarily believing. We think that it is. It's an old proverb. It's an aphorism. Seeing is believing. And we have this tendency sometimes in evangelical Christianity to think that if someone would just show up and work some bona fide miracles, maybe Jesus himself, then everyone would see and everyone would believe and be saved because seeing is believing. But that's not remotely true. Even in the story of the second sign in John chapter 4, the official from Capernaum believed the word that Jesus spoke to him before he saw the work that Jesus had done. On one occasion, a couple of decades back in a completely different church, I had been asked to pray about a medical situation that had a certain amount of urgency. A person came to me before the service began and told me that someone that they knew needed life-saving surgery, but that surgery had been postponed because the blood work that had been done just in advance of the surgery had not turned out well and had indicated that he was not up for the surgery. Well, his family recruited hundreds, probably thousands, really, of people all around the world to pray for this man, and we prayed for him. We prayed for him there that Sunday morning in church because the doctors were going to do the blood work again on Monday morning and see if there was any way they felt that this surgery could be rescheduled. So we prayed. And a couple of weeks went by, and I didn't hear anything more about it. I finally approached the person. And I said, so, so what happened there? You know, we, we prayed, and, and then I didn't hear anything else. Um, and I was told, well, it was, it was so cool. Everything turned out okay because the doctors did the blood work a second time on the Monday morning, and the blood work on Monday morning was so good that the doctors realized that they must have messed it up somehow when they tried it on Friday. So they just threw out those results and they went with the good results that they got on Monday morning and the surgery had been done and the man's life had been saved. What a coincidence, huh? Or maybe, just saying, maybe the test was right the first time too. And then hundreds of people prayed, and the second test was also right, but it returned a different result because on that occasion, God was pleased to intervene. I could almost imagine when I was talking to that person, the official from Capernaum returning home after talking to Jesus. Jesus said, go, um, your son is well. And then he goes home, and on the way home, he meets one of his servants who's coming out who says to him, hey, it's amazing. Your son is all better. He, he got up and started walking around, and the official from Capernaum says, what a coincidence. That was, that's so neat how that happened. I think it was George Mueller who said the coincidences always happened more often when he prayed. Um, and here in John 5... Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And you will notice that the religious leaders who began persecuting him in verse 15 never disputed that the man had been truly healed. He had been an invalid for 38 years. They had no doubt seen him by the pool. 
They knew that he couldn't help himself into the water. They had seen him try, much less pick up his bed and walk. But when they saw him standing there before them, totally healed, and they learned that Jesus was responsible, they did not believe. Here's a miracle right there in their face. A man who has not walked, at least not well, for 38 years, and now he's standing there and he's actually holding his pallet, ready to go home. And they did not believe, and they did not fall down at the feet of the one who had worked this mighty sign. Far from believing, they began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And that's the second detail I want you to notice before we move on. Verse 9 said, now that day, the day when Jesus healed this man, was the Sabbath. But instead of seeing the miracle and then trusting in the miracle worker, the Jews began persecuting him. Instead of understanding that not only the miracle, but even the fact that it was done on the Sabbath were both intended to point to the lordship of Jesus Christ... These religious people chose to hold the lawgiver accountable to their own distorted fantasies about the law. If that seems harsh, consider verses 30 to 47. In these verses, Jesus pointed out three proofs, three witnesses that bore testimony to the truth of who he was and what he was saying about himself, that, as it said in the law, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So just quickly... Verse 33, Jesus said, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. That's one, one of the three. The second is in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's a really important thing to pick up on. Jesus himself is saying, the very works that the Father has given me to do are being done for this purpose so that they can bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus wasn't just running around Judea and Galilee meeting everybody's felt needs. If that had been the case, then there were a whole bunch of other people there at the pool of Bethesda that day that he did not heal who might have a gripe to take up with God. But the works that he did were done to bear witness that he came from the Father and that he was indeed the Son of God. And then verse 37 to 39, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. So the witness of a prophet, John the Baptist, the witness of the signs, the miracles that Jesus performed and the witness of the Father through the scriptures that God had given. Three witnesses. They had them all But still in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
Not only was seeing not believing, instead they presumed to pass judgment on Jesus using the very words of the law that was given to point them to Jesus. Again, we have this tendency to think that if Jesus would just show up, if he would show up at the Beijing Olympics today and he would just do some sort of a mighty miracle right there on a worldwide television broadcast so that everybody could see it and it would be recorded and it could be broadcast to even the people who weren't watching at the moment that he did this sign. If he would just do that, then the whole world would believe in him, but that's not how it works. In John chapter 1, weeks ago we read, he was in the world and the world was made through him. You want to see a miracle? Open the blinds and look out the window. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people. In spite of all that he said and all that he did, his own people did not receive him. And in John chapter 3, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So if Jesus did appear and worked a miracle in Beijing this afternoon, or whatever time of the day it is over there. I'm convinced that the opening on CBC this evening would be something like this. Controversy in Beijing tonight, as Jesus Christ allegedly appears and works a miracle. But if he really is God, and he really is good, then why are we still on the brink of war in Ukraine, and what about the flooding in BC, and why didn't he do something about that? And on and on and on it would go. If the light appeared in Beijing and shone through some mighty sign, the world would not turn to him. They didn't the first time, and they won't the next time. And they wouldn't do it even in this hypothetical because that's exactly what they did here in John chapter 5. They saw the miracle. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus answered them in verse 17, My father is working until now and I am working, which totally answered their question, right? Except in verse 18, they went from persecuting him to, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, at least in their opinion of what the Sabbath was all about, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I don't have time to dwell on this the way I would like to, but watch what Jesus did. He knows this. He is calling God his Father, making himself equal with God, and that is enraging these people. They've seen the miracle. Nicodemus even came to him, as we saw in chapter 3, and said, we know that you are a great teacher come from God, because no one could do these signs that you do unless God was with him. 
But Jesus comes along and then lays claim to being the son of God in a special sense. They pick up on that and they want him dead. They were seeking all the more to kill him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. First thing, notice Jesus did not argue with them about that. In a certain kind of Christianity, we are meant to believe that Jesus never claimed to be God. That was just something that was thrust upon him by his disciples. So Jesus probably, according to these people, would have stopped here and said, wait, 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 wait. You just don't understand. I'm not claiming to be God. I'm not claiming to be equal with God. We're all children of God. That's all I meant. Just calm down. Take it easy. And he did not do that. Far from it. Watch what he did. Knowing how they felt about him claiming that God was his father and thereby making himself equal to God. So in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son, the son, definite article here, can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. And you can just imagine that the temperature's going up with these religious leaders who are listening to him. We just told you we want you dead because you claim that God is your father and by doing so you make yourself equal to God. And then you say this. Truly, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, watch. I, I tried to bold the Son every time it comes up here. And in nine verses, Jesus is going to say it just over and over and over again. These people are saying, you deserve to die because you are calling yourself the Son of God. And Jesus says, oh yeah? Well, I'm calling myself the Son of God because I am the Son of God. Did I mention that I'm the Son of God, and that the Son can only do the things that he sees his Father do. Listen to how he does this. They were seeking all the more to kill him because he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. But Jesus wasn't through. He didn't apologize for offending them or try to explain that he didn't really mean what they thought he meant, that he really didn't mean to make himself equal with God. He didn't explain that because that's exactly what he was doing. In claiming to be the Son of God, he was saying, I and the Father are one. He'll flat out say it later on in the Gospel of John. And John had already told us way back in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. If you have any questions about the deity of Jesus Christ, just read this book over and over again until you get it into your head. Jesus was God. He claimed to be God. He behaved like God. He spoke like God. Watch how many times he does it. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. Greater works. Remember that. Greater works than healing a man who had been disabled for 38 years. Indeed, verse 21 now. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life 
to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, he has just told them, when you deny that I am the Son of God, when you refuse to honor me, you've nullified your whole profession to believe in God and to be the people of Abraham. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father either. And over and over, the Son, the Son, the Son. In verse 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He, who does, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And there it is, in case you wondered, the greatest work, the greatest miracle of all. People run around here and there, and they're looking for these little healing miracles. Jesus could have done another one if he wanted to. When they said, hey, you stop it. We know you healed that guy. That doesn't make you the son of God. He could have pulled flowers out of his sleeve or taken a quarter out of the ear of Caiaphas, the high priest, or something equally dramatic. And he doesn't because that's not the point. He says, you're going to see something so much greater then these little miracles, a son healed from Cana in Galilee when he was away in Capernaum, water turned into wine, this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. You're going to see something greater than that, and here it is. The salvation of all those who hear the word of Christ and trust the Father who sent him. I said a little bit earlier, if you want to see a miracle, open the blinds and take a look outside. Because this world, this universe, is the Son's work. And it points to Him. But if you want to see the greatest miracle of all, just take a look around you this morning. Because every soul that has been saved by hearing the word of Christ and trusting in that word is a miracle of God's amazing sovereign grace. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked when you followed the course of this world and of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There is no greater miracle. What does it cost the one who created the stars and named them and keeps them in their courses to heal a man who's been disabled for 38 years. That's pretty small potatoes when you think about it. What did it cost him to save your soul? He gave himself, he gave his body and blood. He paid that price to save sinners who would turn to him in faith. And there is no greater miracle 
to be found anywhere in Scripture. You have been brought from darkness to light. You have been brought from death to life. And not only that, it is life eternal. And you have it already if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nowhere in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, if you believe in me, I'll give you eternal life when you die. Throughout, he who believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted in him, then you have eternal life. Jesus went on to say, and he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. If you have any questions as to whether or not that title, Son of Man, which was one of Jesus' favorite titles, somehow waters down the concept of Son of God, just go home and read Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Don't, don't do it right now. We're, we're nearly done. But go home and read it at home. Son of Man not only didn't water down the title Son of God, Son of Man, in the mind of those who were standing here listening to Jesus, cemented that concept. Daniel talks about one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days on his throne in heaven and being given a kingdom and dominion and power and authority that will have no end. So these people who thought that Jesus was implying that he was equal to God when he was saying that God was his father have now been told flat out. Not only that, but the father has given authority to the son of man, to Jesus, in order to execute judgment. And listen to his closing words in verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of the Son. So prior to this, he's talking about the spiritual life which Jesus gives to those who come and trust in him. But he's saying, that's not it. That's not the end of this matter. A day is coming. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now we're talking about those who are physically dead. And they will come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment because the Father has given to the Son, the Son of Man, the authority to exercise this judgment. This is our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. He gives life to whom he will. We'll be seeing more of that in weeks to come when we get into John chapter 6. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And all of Jesus' works bear witness to his words. But above all, the salvation of those who hear his word and believe in the Father who sent him, that's the greatest work that he ever did. I said a little bit earlier that there are seven signs in the Gospel of John, that's how most commentaries look at it. There's actually eight. Because if you remember back in chapter one, I believe it was, um, no, sorry, in chapter two, at the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he said, what sign do you do 
to prove that you have authority to do the things that you're doing. You're kind of stirring the pot here, and we'd like to know if you have a right to do it. And Jesus didn't do another sign for them. He just turned to them and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they, like so many in John and so many today, heard words of a spiritual nature and ascribed to them some kind of an earthly meaning. They said, it's taken over 40 years to build this place. You're going to raise it up in three days. And then that divinely inspired commentary on the Gospel of John, where the Spirit led John to say, but they didn't know. He was talking about the temple of his body. And after Jesus had been raised from the dead, they remembered what he said. And that's the eighth sign in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, destroy this body, crucify it, throw it in a tomb, do whatever you can do, and in three days I will raise it up. That means that we have seen a sign that none of them that Jesus was talking to probably ever saw. We know that our Savior Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And when we hear that he is now in the business of doing miracles every minute of every day, every time somebody hears the word of God and turns to him in faith, we know that he has life in himself. And faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you've never trusted in him, if you've never turned to him in faith, then hear this word today and look to him, trust in him, listen and believe. And if you have already, if you've been given salvation through faith in him, then let's just right now rise and worship him, our beautiful Savior, the Son of God and the Son of Man.